The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let's get uh, started again here, and uh, let's continue where we uh, left off this morning here. Uh, so we, we're looking at the uh, uh, five uh, uh, spiritual faculties, the Panch Indriya, uh, and uh, we looked at how they act like a causal sequence, starting with uh, faith, or starting with sadda in the beginning, and then moving up all the way to wisdom, uh, stage by stage. Uh, and uh, I said I was going to have a look a little bit more at the idea of sadda, how we can develop that, uh, how we can kind of approach this from the sutta perspective, uh, and this is what I want to do now. Uh, so um, this is the uh, next sutta here called Mahanama. This is from the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, uh, uh, the book of sixes, uh, and this is the tenth uh, sutta in that book of sixes. Uh, and uh, the Mahanama, he was a cousin of the Buddha, uh, so he is the kind of person uh, the Buddha would meet when he went back home, so to speak, to the Second Republic uh, and was visiting his relatives and his family and all that. Uh. So um, uh, let's just uh, get started and see what, what comes out of this. So on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans at Kapilavatu in the Banyan Tree Park. Then Mahanama the Sakyan approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to the Blessed One, Pante, how does a noble disciple who has arrived at the fruit and understood the teaching often dwell? So, uh, 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 arrived at the fruit and understood the teaching means that you are a noble one already. So this is how the noble ones often dwell. Uh, so this is uh, the, the, what comes now is sort of natural for the noble ones because you have that insight and you know what's going on, it's easy to do for the noble ones. But of course, just because it is easier for the noble ones doesn't mean that it is not relevant to everyone. It is actually re relevant to everyone. It's just that it's not quite as easy, quite as natural to do these reflections if you are not an Arya. So these are the natural ways of dwelling for the noble people. Uh, and the Buddha replies, Mahanama, a noble disciple who has arrived at the fruit and understood the teaching, often dwells in this way. Here, Mahanama, a noble disciple, recollects the Tathagata thus, Tathagata being the Buddha. Uh, the Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened or perfectly awakened, uh, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, uh, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of tameable people, teacher of devas, of gods and humans, uh, the awakened one, uh, the blessed one. Uh. So there you have the, uh, uh, the idea of faith. Yeah, you're recalling the Tathagata, and uh, you have faith, and these are the things that you are supposed to recall in the Buddha. This is how the Buddha himself recommends that we should recollect him. So because he recommends that, this is kind of probably where we should try to apply ourselves. And uh, what is interesting about this sequence, you look at that sequence, and you, one of the things that always struck me about this is how it lacks in all of these supernatural things. 
Yeah, it is all about knowledge, is it about insight, is it about awakening to things. Uh, that's the one side of things, that the fact that the Buddha understands what is going on, uh, he is wiser. And the other side of this is how the Buddha is the teacher. Yeah, Precisely because he is awakened to the reality of things, uh, he is a teacher, unsurpassed teacher of the world. Uh, these are the two things that kind of uh, come out of this. Uh, uh, so there's nothing there which is kind of super normal, uh, and this is very much in contrast to popular Buddhism. Popular Buddhism loves the supernatural and the supernormal. They love to see kind of monks and nuns or lay people kind of walking through space and sinking into the earth and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I would, I admit, I would be quite cool to see that, but it's more like entertainment, yeah. It's more like a bit of entertainment, and afterwards you kind of shrug your shoulders and you you wonder whether you were tricked by another David Copperfield or something like that. You're not really sure. It doesn't really get you anywhere, and that's kind of the problem with that. So this is what really matters. It's interesting what the Buddha talks about the supernormal powers in the Kavada Sutta. Kavada Sutta is found in the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses of the Buddha, number eleven. And he says in there, he, one of the lay people, he's staying in Nalanda. You may have heard about Nalanda, a very famous city in ancient India where they had the very large universities. At the time of the Buddha, it was only a tiny village. And so the Buddha was staying in Nalanda, and one of the lay people comes up to the Buddha, and he says, oh, please ask you know, your monks to do all kind of supernormal feats, because that will give rise to more faith and confidence in all the people in Nalanda. And the Buddha replies to him, he says that, I abhor, I detest, I am disgusted by these supernormal powers. That's the kind of words he used. Yeah, and this is not an exaggeration because the words in Pali, like jaguchi, literally means to kind of to be disgusted by something. And, uh, and this layman is kind of taken aback. What do you mean you're disgusted by these things? And the Buddha says, well, because uh, those people who already have faith and confidence, they will say, how marvelous, how wonderful that they can do all this supernormal stuff. Uh, but those people who have not got faith and confidence, uh, they will say, yeah, it's just a magici- magician's trick. Uh, yeah, There's nothing real in that at all. It's just kind of a, uh, it's all just an illusion. Uh, and uh, uh, that is exactly what will happen. Yeah, this is, We see this all the time. We see illusionists in the present day doing similar kind of tricks already. Uh, that's kind of what you would expect. And that's what the Buddha says. So you wouldn't expect the Buddha here either to elevate supernormal powers into something special. That is not what Buddhism is about. Buddhism is about insight. It's about overcoming suffering. It's about finding happiness. This is the whole purpose of these teachings. All the other stuff is kind of by the by. It doesn't really cut the... It doesn't really have any particular place on the Buddhist path. The apart from being like a side effect of a developed mind. That's what it is, really. So straight away, yeah, it is all about something which is much more kind of down-to-earth, insight, understanding. And we all have some idea what insight is, because you, uh, we all get insights every now and again. Your mind becomes clear and you see a little bit about something, even if it isn't directly related to the spiritual life, uh, some insight, we know how that can arise in the mind. Uh, and this is just more profound thing of the same, uh, of the, of the same uh, idea, basically. Yeah. So, uh, the Buddha. So let's have a look at this, uh, how the Buddha then recommends that we should have faith in the Buddha. So again, this is that famous Itipiso Bhagava uh, a sequence that you find throughout the suttas. This is a very common uh, commonly found in the suttas, this particular uh, passage here. 
So it starts off by saying the Blessed One is an Arahant. Yeah, Arahant in Buddhism is the highest kind of uh, attainment you can have on the Buddhist path. Uh, so uh, just like uh, the monks and nuns were Arahants, so the Buddha too was an Arahant. He had attained the highest kind of perfection. Uh, and the word Arahant is a word that existed in India prior to Buddhism. It was used for perfected people before that. Whether they were perfected or not wasn't really kind of the issue, but people had faith that they were perfected, so they would call people Arahants, who they thought were perfected. But of course, in Buddhism, it had a very specific meaning. Yeah, and it has actually it has a very nice meaning, the idea of Arahant, because it actually means someone who is worthy. And of course, what the Buddha is worthy of, he is worthy, and we will see this later on when it comes to the Aryas, thinking about the 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 Sangha, how to think about the Sangha, what you're worthy of is you're worthy of everything good in the world. You're worthy of other people's generosity and kindness and hospitality and all of these kind of things. Yeah, because uh, you have something much more precious to give in return. And of course, that is why you are worthy of that. Just like we uh, support teachers in general, yeah, often we might be uh, you know, we might give something special to someone who has taught us something because they have given us some valuable insight or understanding how to uh, do a trade or whatever it is. Uh, here you get the highest kind of advice, so you are worthy of the highest kind of support in return. Uh, so you are the, he's the worthy one, he's the arahant, fully awakened. Uh, and um, uh, what is interesting in a sense about the Buddha here is that he... Uh, often people ask, well, what is the distinction between a Buddha and ordinary arahants, like ordinary disciples uh, who just follow after? Uh, and the answer is quite surprising, because the answer is that there isn't that much difference. Uh, yeah, the Buddha and ordinary arahants, they have the same insight into reality. Uh, and sometimes you say that, and people say, what? How can you say that? The Buddha is better. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting, the reaction, because people expect the Buddha to be something absolutely special, way beyond ordinary arahants. But uh, what is special about the Buddha, and this is uh, already special enough, is that he was able to find the path on his own. Yeah, we, it, It's difficult enough to be the disciple, huh? so imagine how difficult it is to find that path by yourself. And that is what makes the Buddha so special. Huh? Uh, but the actual insight and the understanding is the same for the Buddha as it is for other Arahants. And this is one of those things, again, about the Buddha, is to remember that the suttas, they portray him as an ordinary human being. And I think this is so important to remember that, because once you get that idea that the Buddha is really one of us, if you like, he is a human being, he had a similar kind of problems when he started out in life, similar kind of defilements, he had a child, he had a wife, it seems, and, and his life was very similar to what many people's life is like. And then he makes this break, breakthrough, and then he's still an ordinary human being afterwards, in the sense of having a physical body, having to go through the problems of ordinary life, except that his mind has changed. His mind is no longer ordinary. In some ways it is ordinary, because it still has many of the same kind of things happening as we have, but it's purified. It doesn't kind of lead to the same kind of problems. 
And this is so important because this makes the Buddha approachable. It makes in someone that you can actually relate to. Yeah? When the Buddha talks to you, you feel that it is another human being who is teaching you, who has understood what your problems are, and then he can relate to you directly. And this is kind of so significant here. So the Buddha is an arahant like other arahants. There's no essential difference between the Buddha and other arahants. And then it says that he is fully enlightened or perfectly awakened. Yeah, The idea of awakening. And this idea, of course, is related, is, is the word Buddha. Buddha literally means awakened. Bodhi means awakening. So, uh, and uh, again, it's one of those beautiful words that really capture what Buddhism is about. Uh, I don't really, personally don't like the idea of enlightenment so much because, uh, I don't know, it has too many other connotations, in the, especially in kind of Western society. The idea of enlightenment is a particular time in the, after the Middle Ages when the world kind of went from, you know, to uh, using the scientific method and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but this is not what this is about. This is about awakening to reality, as if you come out of a dream. And this is what it is. Yeah, You awaken when you are in a dream, you are deluded, you don't see things clearly. And then you come out and think, oh, wow, I'm glad I'm out of that dream. Maybe it wasn't very pleasant or whatever. And then one day you wake up, you see things as they actually are. You come out of the delusion. And that is exactly what it is like to be a Buddha. And awakening, of course, also has the idea of going from darkness of night to light as well. You awaken to the truth, you turn on the light. And this idea of turning on the light is one of those very important aspects of uh, one of those uh, similes for awakening. Light goes on, uh, you see what is there before, you're wandering around in darkness, uh, not really un understanding. Uh. And then you also have that beautiful simile that we mentioned the other day about the... Um, chick in the shell, yeah, inside the shell, you're kind of a tiny little world, and one day you break out to reality, you waken up to the larger truth, the bird's eye view, the perspective on life as it actually is, and this is part of that awakening experience. And this is what is expressed in the next one here, the idea of being accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, vidya charana sampanno, Vidya is this Pali word that uh, is uh, uh, is um, related to uh, the English word wit. Yeah, someone who has ready wit is like some, someone who is intelligent. Yeah, and it's related to the German word wissen. Wissen in German is also knowledge and understanding. Uh, the Norwegian word viten is exactly the same word again. And all of these are Indo-European languages, so they all have the same root, the same meaning. And uh, vidj means, literally means like understanding or knowledge, or you can call it insight if you like. Yeah. And that is a nice way of translating that word as insight, uh, because the Buddha then has, is accomplished in insight and conduct. Uh, and of course, accomplished here, sampanno, then means that you have the highest kind of insight, uh, again, into the nature of existence. Uh, that is really what the Buddha has uh, so what does that mean to have the highest kind of nature insight into the nature of existence? Well, in Buddhism, what it means in particular is the te vidya, the three insights or the three knowledges. And uh, 
it's nice to think of these things as insights because uh, normally it is not expressed in that way. And that is the idea of remembering your past lives, understanding the laws of karma, and then having the final insight into a non-self, etc., the, the Four Noble Truths uh, at the very end. Uh, and these are insights uh, because when you see things like rebirth, uh, it changes your perspective entirely on the nature of existence. Uh, yeah, that eggshell, suddenly you break out. Whoa! Everything is so much larger. There's so much more to this than I thought. And then you see the importance of this. And I think it's hard to overemphasize the importance of the idea of rebirth in Buddhism. And I mentioned that the other day, when you take rebirth out of the Buddhist teachings, what you end up with, you end up having to rewrite Buddhism almost from scratch. Because rebirth is so embedded into all the various doctrines, all the various teachings. It is right there in the Four Noble Truths. Yeah? Each of the Four Noble Truths actually alludes to rebirth in one way or another. It is found there in dependent origination. It is found there at the end of the path. What you're supposed to get rid of is actually precisely rebirth. It is so completely embedded in these teachings that if you take it out, you have to rewrite the whole thing. And then you get things like, instead of craving leading to suffering, you get suffering leading to craving. Yeah? And then you have turned the teaching upside down, yeah? which is kind of amusing. It's amusing if it wasn't, it's also a bit sad because some of these people are quite famous, they're quite well known. And of course, people will tend to listen to them. And this is problematic. There's a nice little sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya that says that, uh, those people who are most detrimental for the Dhamma in the world uh, are those who are famous and articulate and kind of you know good at getting disciples, uh, but they have wrong view. Uh, yes, there are people like that who are really kind of, they, they, they seem to have it all together, but actually they turn out to have wrong view. Uh, and of course then they kind of drag everyone else down with them uh, at the same time. Uh, and this is very kind of bad for the Dhamma in the long run. Uh, and of course, there is a lot of that in the world, so you have to be quite discerning in the way you approach the Dhamma to make sure that you actually get the real deal rather than some false gold or whatever it is. So you are accomplished in true knowledge and conduct. The idea of rebirth is so fundamental to the Buddhist path. And then you have the knowledge of the, uh, uh, the, the knowledge of Kamma, which is... Uh, the mechanism that drives rebirth, if you like. And then you have the last noble truth, which is the last of these tevijjas, which is the seeing of the four noble truths. And one of the main aspects of that is the understanding of non-self, yeah? that you really eliminate all senses of self, and that is what allows you to see suffering fully. As long as there is a self in there, you will have a vested interest in the happiness in the world, and you won't be able to see suffering fully, because that self-view will actually block you from being able to see that. So this is what the Buddha has understood and you will see basically what he has understood is this kind of large-scale perspective on the nature of reality here. He has seen the nature of existence in the kind of the, as a complete thing here and this is what this is about. Um, and of course, if you want to have a teacher, you want to have someone who really understands. You want to have someone who has really understood. You don't want to have someone who is kind of has this uh, tiny little view of reality. You want to have someone who uh, can stand back and see things fully. And um, what is 
uh, also, of course, important here is the idea of conduct. Conduct comes together with vidya. Once you understand it, it changes you. Uh, because uh, it does something to you psychologically, uh, you become psychologically different, uh, then because of that, your conduct also changes. Uh, so if you destroy, if you see reality as it is, and then you destroy the defilements, you have no more, no more defilements in you, it means that your conduct uh, will reflect that somehow. You won't, ref you won't be able to act on defilements anymore. Uh, and uh, because you won't be act on defilements, you, you, know, you shouldn't be angry, you shouldn't have any desires, uh, you should have a high degree of clarity and all of these kind of things. Uh, and you should also be, have all the opposite qualities that come from the destruction of those things. Uh, you should be gentle, you should be patient, without any desire, yeah, there's nothing to run around for anymore, you should be patient and peaceful kind of person. Uh, you should be gentle and kind, generally speaking. Uh, you should have clarity and perspective of things. Uh, and of course, the po point here is that what this means is that, generally speaking, uh, you can tell, at least to some extent, uh, who has uh, some spiritual maturity and who does not. Uh, you can see that because you can just look for the external signs. Uh, you may never, it's impossible to be absolutely sure, yeah, and especially uh, it can be hard because you may not have access to people so much, but uh, at least you can have some idea, some guidance in these things. And uh, so this is uh, quite useful because uh, sometimes there are very good grounds for having doubt about certain people, so please don't be afraid of having doubt when there is grounds for doubt. This is one of the problems in Buddhism. Sometimes people say, oh, you, you can't have doubt about this person because they're an arahant. If you have doubt about them, you make bad karma. That kind of it makes it impossible. Yeah, it, it kind of, it's really, and that's a very silly kind of idea. If there is grounds for doubt, they are precisely not an arahant, so there is grounds for doubt. Uh, so, you, uh, so it's kind of a silly way of looking at things. Uh, so you have to be able to stand your own ground and you have to be, uh, willing to look at things in your own way and not just go with the crowd. Uh, if you go too much with the crowd, you're not gonna, not gonna go very far here. So, uh, uh, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, uh, fortunate. Yeah. So he. This means like sugata. Sugata. It means like gone to a good destination. Uh, so like happy, perhaps, or something like that. Uh, fortunate to me has a little bit too much luck. Uh, connotation to it, uh, but uh, certainly the ha maybe the happy one or something like that. Uh. Knower of the world, and uh, uh, this is uh, another one of these epithets that you have again the idea of full understanding of the world. You know what the world is really like, and uh, of course it starts off with just uh, understanding the human society and really understanding what human society is like. And sometimes it is surprising how deluded people are, even about the human world. Uh, look at all the people in the world who pursue all the, all the kind of worldly things like wealth and status and uh, social position and uh, all of these things. Uh, and uh, we pursue them because we don't really understand how empty they are, how they can never really uh, give any satisfaction. If we understood how empty they were and how little satisfaction they can give, we would never pursue these things. Uh, so we are pursuing things that actually d don't really do anything. And 
this becomes so clear when you one of the nice things about being a Buddhist monk is that you meet people in all kind of strata of society yeah i I know a lot of people who are ext- really really wealthy because this is what you these are the kind of people you meet sometimes as a Buddhist monk and what is so obvious is that these people are no more happy, have no more satisfaction, they have exactly the same problems as ordinary people do. Yeah, it makes no difference whether you're wealthy, it makes no difference even if you have a high social standing or status. It may make some difference, but the difference is very small. And uh, I just, uh, one of the things that I, I remember I was staying in the house of someone in Singapore, and this was one of the wealthiest people in, in Singapore. It has this enormous house, and I was given the top floor in this house. Yes, I was living in, in luxury. Don't tell anyone. This is kind of a trade, trade secrets. <laughs> I got given the whole top floor. Yeah, big, big room and kind of everything, I, everything up there, and a couple of servants look after you and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and this happens happens to me a few times when I travel around the world because uh, sometimes people really want to kind of pamper you, even though it might kind of destroy you and make you into bad monks. Still, they want to pamper you. You know, they're taking ch- taking chances there. But so I was living in this house, and uh, then in the morning I'm living on this third floor. And I'm looking there's a big atrium. You can see the whole all the floors looking down. And in the morning, I come down to the breakfast table. Yeah, and the husband is there, the wife is there. They have three sons. All the sons are already left, left home, so they're kind of just by themselves. And all the servants kind of whirling around and kind of looking after them. And then they start talking, yeah, because this is kind of the purpose of having a monk in your house. So you can talk to this monk, yeah, so maybe the monk can give you some good advice. So I'm sitting there kind of, you know, supposed to deal, kind of deal out good advice to these people, how to deal with their children and with all this kind of stuff, which I have no experience with, of course, but still, <laughs> they expect you to give advice on these kind of things. So I sit there listening to them and talking about their life, and you realize that their life is just like anyone else's life. They're complaining about their children, not listening, not kind of doing what they're supposed to do, becoming Christians rather than being Buddhists. Yeah, this is kind of one of the big ones. And all of these things, and the more I listen, the more I realize that whether you're wealthy or not, your life is pretty much exactly the same. Okay, your house is a bit bigger, you have a few more servants around, you have a nice car, but apart from that, your inner turmoil and the inner problems you have are exactly the same. Yeah? So all of people always dream about wealth, thinking that somehow it's going to make a big difference in your life, but actually it doesn't. And very often on the way to getting all that wealth, you have been working really hard, so you maybe you are a bit more bad-tempered than other people, yeah, and all these kind of things. And in the end, actually, it is, it is almost useless to be really wealthy compared to being an ordinary person. And I remember going up in the evening, and I was going up to my third floor, and I was kind of walking out to the bathroom, so I looked over the railing, because there was a big atrium there, and I looked down, and I saw the man in the house, he was sitting on the couch down the bottom there, with his iPhone, kind of, you know, going through whatever he was looking at, I don't know what it was, and it just looked lonely, yeah, one man in this enormous house, going through this little, <laughs> doing his thing on the iPhone, like everyone else does, and I thought, what's the point, it's, it's madness, and then he's worked so hard for this and built up all of these things, and still we dream about this. Still we think this is important. And I, another story which I which I remember, another thing I remember quite well was one. Uh, this is closer to Melbourne because this was James Packer when James Packer took over from his father Kerry Packer about I don't know, 
10 years ago, whatever it was, and his father, Kerry Packer, passed away, and then James Packer uh, took over. And uh, there was an, I read an interview with him in a newspaper. Here. And in this interview, and when I read this, I knew this fellow was going to have trouble in the future. And that's, that was my thought right there and then. Uh, he said that, uh, he said, and I, it probably was partly in joke, yeah, because you cannot say these things 100% with a straight face, but he said that uh, the one who dies with the most toys wins. And I thought, what? <laughs> Have you understood anything at all about life? And probably it was partly in joke, but I don't think it's, it, these things are never said 100% in jest. There probably was some truth to that. And I always thought, well, this fellow, he's going to have serious trouble in life if that is how he's going to live his life. And, of course, he has had serious trouble. He's had a problem with lots of depression and failed marriages and all kinds of things. And if that is your attitude, that is where you end up. So here you are, one of the most kind of powerful, influential, wealthy families in Australia. And really, they haven't got a clue how to live their life in the right way. And it's kind of sad. So it kind of pushes you off all of that. You, don't, you wonder, what's the point of all of these things? And yet somehow, so many of us, we are still interested in that path of wealth and power and status and all of these things, when actually it doesn't really give anything at all. And then, one day you die, everything has to go. Yeah? You spent your whole life building up all of these things, and you are proud of it, and of course you are attached to it. The more of these things you have, the more attached you're going to be, especially if you have put all your effort into building these things up, and then you're on your deathbed. And how do you feel? You feel confused. You feel out of it. You wonder, did I waste my whole life? What was the point of this? Now everything has to go, and there's nothing to take with you into the future. That's when you feel terrible about these things. And that is where the idea of rebirth kind of comes into the equation very powerfully. If you don't have an idea of rebirth, then maybe you can justify uh, pursuing wealth you know, as if it is the only thing worthwhile. Even then, I don't think you can justify it. But uh, certainly, when there is rebirth, it starts to become really nonsensical uh, because it is so short-sighted uh, and so, um, uh, so useless at the end of the day. Uh. So this is obviously part of what the Buddha has understood, but this is all still pretty shallow. Yeah, Obviously the Buddha sees things in a much more profound sense. So when the Buddha talks about knowing the world, it, is, it has to do with much further than that. It has to do again with all the uh, potential rebirths and all the potential things that you can experience in samsaric existence. So it is about, really, it is about happiness and suffering, what knowing of the world really means. Uh, how much suffering is it possible to acquire in samsaric existence? Uh, how much uh, happiness and suffering is there? How do they balance out? Uh, is there a realm where you can be reborn and you can hang out forever after uh, and just be happy? Uh, or is that impossible? Uh, so the Buddha has full insight into happiness and suffering, uh, what can be done in the world uh, and what cannot be done. Uh, yeah, and that is really uh, the kind of the uh, requirement to become fully awakened. Uh, because only when you understand the full picture in terms of happiness and suffering, whether it can be sustained or whether it cannot, uh, only then do you really have an insight into the nature of the world. And then you can make a choice whether it is worthwhile continuing your samsaric existence uh, or whether you want to kind of get out of the wheel of samsara. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the importance of this. Uh. And uh, maybe I should uh, add very briefly that uh, 
sometimes people have a hard time with this idea of other realms. Uh, sometimes they might accept rebirth as a human being, uh, but rebirth as a god or a ghost sounds a bit is a bit too much for many people. Uh, but uh, remember, it is not it is not different really from being reborn as a human being. Uh, if you get reborn as a ghost, then oops, I'm a ghost now. Yeah, okay, carry on. Yeah. Or, or you become a god, oh, oh, this is quite cool, yeah, now i got this really nice body, and I feel really strong and powerful, okay, I'm a god now. So it's not any different, yeah, it's just you continuing it, but now you have a slightly different body, or a slightly different powers than you had before, but there you are, it's just you carrying on. In a sense, it's just an expansion of the human realm. You look at the human realm, you have the kind of the people who are the most poor or the most uneducated and the most uh, uh, sickly and all you know at one end of the scale and then you have the really wealthy ones and healthy ones and at the other end of the scale there's quite a large scale in the human realm between the people who are most uh, live in the most deprived conditions and then those who live in the most kind of uh, uh, exclusive conditions if you like and uh, uh, the idea of rebirth all you all you are doing is you're expanding those possibilities of suffering and happiness much much further that's really all it is as if you're expanding the potential of the human realm to include much more so uh, when you look at it that way it doesn't seem so alien and foreign anymore it just seems like a fairly perhaps a fairly natural thing and then we have the idea of the Buddha as the unsurpassed trainer of people to be tamed, yeah, or tameable people. And um, uh, he is unsurpassed because, again, because he has understood things fully, but it's not just because he has understood things fully that he is unsurpassed, but it's also because he is teaching out of compassion. This is one of the things to understand about the Buddha, is that the Buddha, uh, after his awakening, one of the first things he says is that he he would rather not teach, yeah, he would rather just relax and chill. And he doesn't really not, not too keen on teaching because it is can be hard. It can be people misunderstanding him, not really being interested in what he has to say, and all of that. Actually, I don't think that story is quite true, to be honest with you. I think that there is a grounds for having some doubts about that story. But anyway, that's what it says there. And you can see why the Buddha might have had some doubts about that. So when the Buddha teaches. It is purely out of compassion. The Buddha has no vested interest. He doesn't gain anything from his teachings. In fact, he loses the ability to just sit down and meditate and be peaceful and enjoy the happiness of awakening. And this is what is so beautiful about the Buddha teaching, that he teaches from purity, teaches from compassion, and there's nothing else there that actually drives the Buddha in when he teaches. And this is... When you think about it like that, it's actually, uh, it's, um, you know, very often you are maybe in the presence of a teacher and that teacher uh, wants to get something out of it. They, very often you, you want to get some, you know, you have a, your salary depends on your teaching uh, and because you uh, want to get something out of it and you have to do it as a job, you might get angry if the children don't kind of, you know, behave properly or whatever. Uh, these are all vest, when you have a vested interest in what is going on. But because the Buddha has no vested interest, all of those emotions also are not there. So when you are in the presence of the Buddha, you can feel safe. Yeah, you can feel relaxed. You can be at ease because you know he will only teach out of compassion for you. He will only give you things that will help you and aid you. And he will never abuse you or give you a hard time at all. So the way I like to 
think of the Buddha. I like to think of the Buddha as, you know, you, you take some of the stories that you find in the suttas of the Buddha sitting in the forest at the root of a tree uh, and then someone approaching approaching the Buddha. So imagine yourself approaching the Buddha. He's sitting, he looks a little bit like this, yeah, except that he is Indian uh, and his robes are slightly different. Yeah, In those days the robes weren't quite as long as this. The color was maybe a little bit like this. He would look basically like a monk and he would often sit at the root of a tree in the forest. So you can imagine yourself approaching the Buddha. How do you feel? You feel a bit scared? <laughs> it's a bit frightening. Yeah, this is the Buddha. This is the most this greatest spiritual genius in human history. You're about to approach. It's impossible to have greater insight into the nature of reality. You know he can read your mind if he wants to. Yeah, he knows everything about you straight away. Oh no, that's really scary. It's frightening to approach a Buddha. Yeah? Of course, there's no grounds for being afraid, but still it is frightening because it comes across as so powerful. So you approach the Buddha in the forest, kind of slightly, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe I can get some understanding from this person. So you go up to the Buddha, and then maybe you bow down because you feel that that is what you're supposed to do. You're afraid not to bow down because if you don't bow down, you might get really told off. Yeah, So you bow down just in case. <laughs> and then you sit down in the presence of the Buddha and all you feel is the sense of compassion, of peace, of kindness, uh, uh, but together with this great profundity, this profundity of understanding, this feeling that you are in the presence of something very special and very unique. Uh, that's all you feel. It is pure compassion. Uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, in fact, when you come into the presence of a person like that, uh, you feel the opposite of fear. You feel completely embraced and completely accepted uh, because the Buddha understands your humanity. He understands that, yes, your mind is defiled. It's okay. Everyone else is the same. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you have defiled mind. That's fine. And then he embraces you and he accept, accepts you for who you are. And you feel, after a while, you start to feel completely at ease in the presence of a person like that. There's no ego there. There's no sense of self. When there is an ego, there's always the feeling that someone might get angry or upset. Or When they are challenged, they may not, they may not like to be challenged. Yeah? What? Are you challenging me? And uh, how, how, how can you ask such a stupid question? There's none of that at all. The ego is gone. And when the ego is gone, uh, there is no fear anymore because there's no way you're going to be able to, uh, to you know, say anything which is, uh, they're going to take the wrong way. It's impossible. Uh. So it's very beautiful to meet the Buddha. Yeah, it is, very, it is one of those very, very uplifting experiences. Uh. So remember that. And on the surface, an ordinary person, uh, but on a deeper psychological level, someone who is fully safe, uh, fully uh, at ease, uh, and makes you feel very good in their presence. Uh, and uh, when you start to think of the Buddha like that, uh, and then you read the suttas, uh, and you remember that these suttas were given to people just like us two and a half thousand years ago, by this man who only had compassion for us. He only wanted to do to help us out. He knew, he knows, he has the answer to all the big questions in life. And because he has the answer, he wants to share that with us because he can help us as well. That knowledge, the knowledge that you understand the nature of existence, what makes you want to share it with others because you can help others as well. So you, uh, here, you, here you are yeah, with this Buddha, and he, when you read the suttas again, uh, the feeling of being in the presence of the Buddha, uh, remember that when the Buddha gave these teachings two and a half thousand years ago, uh, 
he knew that he was setting in motion the Dhamma Chakra, the wheel of the Dhamma. He knew that this wheel of the Dhamma was going to be passed on from generation to generation, from society to society. And he knew that there would be people sitting around maybe two and a half thousand years in continents far away like Australia or whatever, yeah, hearing these teachings. And in a very real sense, each one of us is a direct disciple of the Buddha precisely because he was thinking like that. This is meant to be a universal teaching. Uh, approachable and understandable by any person, regardless of culture, regardless of time. Uh, and this is what makes them so powerful. Uh. It's kind of astonishing. You read these teachings and you recognize yourself. Yeah, You see the defilements there. It talks about the purification of mind. And you realize, it actually, this is about you. Yeah, There's no doubt that it's about you. And everybody I know, not everybody I know, man, most peop many people I know have exactly that same feeling when they read the suttas. Uh. This is about me. I, I understand this. Uh, this makes sense. Uh, this relates to me. Uh, and it doesn't matter what kind of background you have. Uh, it relates to all, each one of us. Uh. So this kind of you know, beautiful universal teaching uh, that is given purely out of compassion. Uh. So when you read the suttas in that way, they become very powerful uh, because you are more willing to take them on board the way they are because you know it's coming from compassion. Uh, and you have this idea of the Buddha as a human being who's talking directly to you. So, uh, he is the unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed. Yeah? This is what that is about. Or this is one way of looking at that. Uh, what I'm giving you now is just my personal understanding of this to kind of make it a bit more real. And uh, hopefully you can use some of that, but you can develop this in your own way. Uh, one of the nice things about reading the suttas and reading about some of the places where the Buddha meets other people and he talks to other people, is you start to get a feeling for the Buddha as a person. Uh, yeah, there are some really nice suttas. There's one, a couple of maybe I can maybe mention a couple of suttas. One of them is a, a sutta where the Buddha talks to King Pasenadi. King Pasenadi is the king of Kosala, the one of the you know, biggest kingdoms in India at that time, and he was a very devout disciple of the Buddha. And whenever he had a problem, he would come to the Buddha and say, "Master, please help. You know, I've got a problem." And one day he was coming to the Buddha. He was huffing and puffing, yeah. And the Buddha said, "Well, you know, have you have you eaten too much? Uh, you know, great king." And he says, "Yes, I've eaten too much. I kind of, kind of couldn't stop myself. I ate a you know bucket full of food or whatever it was." And then the Buddha says, gives him this verse, yeah. And this verse, I can't remember exactly how it goes now, but this verse, something like. Uh, uh, the person who kind of knows moderation in eating, uh, he uh, safeguards his, uh, his uh, he reduces illness and safeguards his life or something like that. Uh, and, then, uh, and then the king says, oh, sadhu, 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 <laughs> how wonderful. Uh, and then he says to uh, the attendant, there's a Brahmin student there who is an attendant, he says to the Brahmin student, learn this verse, uh, and then whenever I have a meal, tell me this verse when I eat. Uh, yeah? <laughs> and I will give you a wage if you do that much. Uh, so this is how you gain wages, wages in those days. You just tell, you kind of say this verse to the king while he's eating his meal. And this is like, a, and then later on, uh, the king comes back to the Buddha and kind of now he's slimmed down again. He has lost a bit of weight and he say, kind of thanks the Buddha for his advice. So this is kind of the, one of the world's first advices on how to lose weight, yeah? weight loss <laughs> advice. Isn't that great? And it's right there in the suttas. It is so, uh, it is so cool. <laughs> So this kind of gives you a feeling for the Buddha. Yeah, he was kind of an ordinary person dealing with people in a very ordinary way sometimes. 
And there's another, another one, nice one, which I might mention, which is found in the same collection in the Kosala Sangyuta. And this is where, while the Buddha is talking to King Pasenadi, a man comes up and he whispers into the king's ear. And he whispers into the king's ear, he says, Your Majesty, your wife Malika had just given birth to a girl. Yeah, while he was visiting the Buddha, his wife gave birth to a girl. And then he says, oh no, not a girl. Yeah, he's really disappointed, he's glum. He looks down on the ground. They all wanted to have boys. Yeah? This is part of Indian culture. And uh, then the Buddha tells him that, well, you know, you look a bit glum. You know, what's the reason? Oh, I, my wife just gave birth to a girl. And then he, sa- and then he tells her, it, it, and then the Buddha tells him that uh, a girl can turn out better than a boy here. Yeah, there's no need to be glum. You don't know whether this is going to be bad or good. Good, bad, who knows, as Ajahn Brahm would say here. And uh, so this is kind of almost like a, a almost like a feminist thing. Yeah, It's kind of almost like saying, well, women don't have to be worse than men. It really depends on the situation, who is worse and who is better. So they can be equal or they can even be better sometimes. And uh, so this is kind of a, and again, this Buddha, Buddha's ideas of things often are contrary to the contemporary culture, uh, and it kind of brings in uh, ideas like that that, are, that seem to be very modern uh, uh, compared, you know, compared to what was the prevailing attitude at that time. Uh. That's another kind of nice little sutta, uh. and there are many more in that Kosala Sangyutta. Uh, and uh, they are very kind of beautiful uh, when you see the Buddha in a kind of an ordinary context, uh, which is very nice. Uh, anyway, let's get back to this one again. So, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be trained, teacher of devas and humans. Yeah, so uh, teacher of the devas, in other words, is not as if the gods necessarily are wise. The Buddha has the unsurpassed wisdom. Uh, so, if the gods want a teacher, they too come to the Buddha. And uh, there's no need to go to any gods because the Buddha has has what it takes. Uh, the enlightened one, uh, the blessed one. Uh. So uh, there you are. Uh, that is the uh, idea of the Buddha and just one way of thinking about the Buddha. Uh, and uh, again, you can expand that whatever, however you like. Uh, uh, but it is a nice way of thinking about the Buddha. And he is what he is, really. He is the supreme religious or spiritual teacher in human history. Yeah, from a Buddhist point of view, it is impossible to become more awakened than the Buddha was. And that is what actually said in one of the suttas, when Bhasariputta goes up to the Buddha, and he says that there's no other Buddha more awakened than you are, because this is the supreme awakening, because there is really only this path and this result and this is kind of how far you can go. Huh? And this is kind of nice to have the greatest spiritual master in human history, isn't it, uh, as your teacher. Huh? There's something really powerful about that uh, and something really nice. So it's kind of nice to get your head around what that means in practice. Uh, and then uh, you, can, uh, 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 you can really uh, use that possibility to, uh, the, to your own, for your own good. Uh. And uh, this is one of the reasons why we bow down to the Buddha. Yeah, we kind of bow down to a Buddha statue. Uh, obviously, uh, it's precisely to kind of show, in a sense, your gratitude for those teachings. Even though the Buddha is not here, it's like a remembrance of who the Buddha was. Uh, and in the presence of the Buddha, uh, you would also bow down if the Buddha was there. Uh, and uh, the reason 
you know, sometimes people are reluctant to bow. I remember when I first came into a Buddhist monastery, I was scared. Yeah, what is going on in Buddhist monasteries? And I, there's no way I was going to bow when I first came in. That looked like some really dangerous stuff. What are you doing bowing around like that? And it's, <laughs> and because it's almost as if you are putting someone else up on the pedestal and you're kind of putting yourself in their power. Yeah, if you bow down to somebody, it's like saying they have power over you. But of course, it is not like that, because the Buddha, when you bow down to the Buddha, the Buddha doesn't want to have any power over you. It's got nothing to do with that. The reason you bow down to the Buddha is because it's good for you. Yeah, When you bow down to the Buddha, you are showing a degree of a bit of humility. You are saying that I am the student, you are the teacher. Please teach me. I want to be humble and try to learn something from you. And when you bow in the right way, it has actually has a lot of those beautiful effects. You feel more soft inside. You feel more accepting of these teachings. And this is why bowing can be good. Of course, bowing should never be about a power trip. If it is, then that is when it is dangerous. It should always be about spiritual development. And this is one of those great things in Buddhism, is that precisely because we have this uh, two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old teaching, uh, it means that we are all bowing down to the same teacher, someone who has passed away. So nobody can really get too much above themselves. Yeah, There is no chance of having gurus quite in the same way as in teachings where the spiritual guru is on top of everything. He is the top of the hierarchy. Well, in Buddhism, we don't have that. The top of the hierarchy is the Buddha, and he's already passed away. And everyone else, we kind of have the same teacher together uh, and that reduces some of that danger of uh, guru, guru worship, which is so common in our world, uh, and the kind of dangerous sects and all of these kind of things. Uh, it still happens, unfortunately, uh, because you still find people who kind of uh, put themselves up as a teacher a little bit too much, and then it becomes dangerous. Uh, but at least it shouldn't really happen in Buddhism, uh, because we have that common reference point when it comes to uh, who we take as our teacher. Uh. So, uh, oh, okay. Um, so that is a little bit about the Buddha. So what happens then if you are able to kind of uh, uh, think like this and maybe you get a bit of uplift when you th think about the Buddha in this way? Uh, again, you have to do it in your own way to make sense of this. Uh, then what happens? And what happens next is this, uh, if it works for you. Uh, when a noble disciple recollects the Buddha, the Tathagata, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by uh, desire, ill will, and confusion. On that occasion, his mind is simply straight, based on the Buddha. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. Let's just, let's just stop there, because just uh, briefly just comment on that. Uh, so, when you recollect the Buddha, huh, yeah, on that occasion your mind is not obsessed by greed, ill will, or confusion. Huh? Um, uh, in other words, the defilements of the mind are are reduced. Yeah, you're no longer obsessed. They may still be there in the background, but only very lightly. Huh? And the reason is because you are your mind is pointing in a different direction. Your mind is pointing towards the Dhamma. You understand where real meaning is to be found and for that reason you're not interested in the worldly things at that particular point and because you're not interested in the worldly things all the defilements that come with the worldly things die down these the all of these defilements are connected with usually the sensory world yeah so once the worldly sensory worldly things 
are no longer important because we contemplate in the Buddha the defilements by definition are reduced. This is how it works. Yeah, You are inclining the mind towards spirituality rather than towards the worldly things. And on that occasion, because the defilements go down, your mind is said to be straight. This is uju, ujuka. And we talked about four, straight view, ujukaditi. And it is straight because defilements are what makes the mind crooked. Defilements are what makes the mind having vested interest, where the mind cannot see things clearly because it is being pulled around by the desires and the ill will and all of that stuff. So it is a uh, not straight, but in this case it then becomes straight based on the contemplation of the Buddha. When your mind is straight, you gain inspiration in the meaning and in the Dhamma. Inspiration, Veda, uh, again this is very similar to the idea of faith. Veda means both feeling and understanding. Yeah, This is uh, related to the word Vijja that we saw before. Uh, vijja, in other words, it's insight and understanding, but also Veda, as in Vedana. Vedana means feeling. Uh, so both of those things arising together, like inspiration. And faith is very similar to that. Yeah, When you have faith, confidence in something, you very often feel inspired. You can see how this now comes together here. Uh, the inspiration, the joy that comes with that, you feel inspired, is a similar kind of thing that you feel with faith. So by having faith to the Buddha, the inspiration, the positive feelings arise and you gain that joy connected with the Dhamma. It says here, inspiration in the meaning, because the meaning is that these teachings point us towards real purpose, real happiness, away from suffering. This is the meaning of the Dhamma, yeah, pointing you towards something very positive in your life. And Inspiration connected with the Dhamma is inspiration connected with the fact that you have teachings that give you that meaning which is so useful. And then the joy arises based on that. And then comes this beautiful sequence that we see everywhere around in the suttas. When he is joyful, rapture arises. This is the piti. From the pamuja comes the piti. For one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. When tranquil in body, feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes stilled. Yeah, this is a standard sequence in the suttas. And uh, uh, this is related to the five spiritual faculties. Not exactly the same, but there is a relationship here. Uh, the uh, joy, as I mentioned before, the joy and the piti, all of these things come with energy. So the second of the five spiritual faculties is energy, right? You had faith first, then energy. So the energy comes here. And from the energy, you have the mindfulness faculty, which also is part of the sequence. The mindfulness arises when the joy comes about. And then from that mindfulness comes the samadhi spiritual faculty, which is then at the end of this particular sequence. Yeah, so all of these things kind of uh, tying in together. Uh, and of course, when you have that stillness of the mind, uh, that samadhi, then you also have the basis for wisdom as a consequence. Uh, so all of these things kind of working together. They're all different angles on the same thing uh, that expands your view of what is going on. Uh, and this is also very closely related to the seven factors of awakening, which we will look at later on. Uh, uh, almost exactly many, many aspects in common here. Uh, so, uh, this is how faith leads to samadhi. Yeah? When you have the right kind of confidence in the Buddha, 
and also the Dhamma and the Sangha, then Samadhi can happen as a consequence. And then the Buddha says, this is called a noble disciple who dwells in balance amid an unbalanced population, who dwells unafflicted amid an afflicted population. As one who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, he develops recollection of the Buddha. You dwell in balance because the defilements no longer pull you around and make you uh, go here and do that and your mind becomes lost in future fantasies and cravings and ideas. Instead, you stay in the present moment. Uh, You are balanced, no ill will, no strong desires. Uh, Whereas most people, of course, don't have that. They are always being pulled around by the world. Uh, You dwell unafflicted amid an afflicted population because these defilements are afflictions. Uh, You don't see it at the time, but they actually are suffering. Uh, You are never really present, always looking to the future or perhaps looking to the past, uh, never really enjoying what you have. Uh, It is a a state of suffering to have all these defilements running around in your mind. Uh, And as one who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, as an Arya Pugala, you develop the recollection of the Buddha. So, there you are. This is uh, one way of thinking about the Buddha. And um, uh, so you can try that. And again, even though this is specifically said to be for the noble ones, it doesn't mean that it's something that we shouldn't try. Everyone can do this to some extent and gain some kind of feeling for who the Buddha was. And the more feeling you have for who the Buddha was, the more real the suttas become, the more real the teachings become. Uh, because uh, sometimes you read the suttas and you wonder, you know, who did this Buddha really exist? Is he a kind of a fictitious person? Uh, were the suttas were they just invented by some, you know, someone uh, two, not, you know, long time ago, maybe yesterday? Who knows? Uh, and uh, <laughs> not yesterday, okay, the day before yesterday. Uh, then uh, you know, this is the thing. It's sometimes hard to really uh, get a feeling that these things are real teachings that actually came from a real person who existed two and a half thousand years ago. The evidence, of course, looking at it historically, is that there's no doubt, I think, that this actually happened from a historical perspective, but we also need to make it emotionally true. So you gain that connection with the Buddha. And this is how you can build up that connection and that actually tends to empower your meditation even further. The more connection you have with this, the more powerful it becomes. So uh, this is what is uh, what is uh, kind of what we're trying to do here, uh, and going on pilgrimage to India can also help uh, bringing about that connection with these ancient teachings. Uh, so uh, I had intended to go much further, but uh, there you are. Uh, this is kind of the nature of these things. You never really know exactly what's going to happen, but uh, we better uh, stop there, uh, and uh, then we will continue again tomorrow morning. Uh, And uh, also, we'll see you at uh, 7.30 and continue with the meditation then.